right, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go to uh, Matthew 9. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Matthew 9, beginning with verse 18. Well, I was thinking about it. It's been uh, about three weeks, or almost exactly three weeks, since we celebrated Christmas together. Three weeks. And if you're anything like us, you've probably put away your Christmas tree, maybe taken down your Christmas decorations, rearranged the furniture, put your house back in order. And life is kind of getting back to uh, routine and in winter here in central Illinois or wherever you're tuning in online. I want to ask you this morning, thinking back three weeks, how many of you received a really awesome Christmas gift there this year? Anybody get just a really fantastic Christmas gift this year? This is the participation part. Okay. Okay. It was a bummer of a Christmas, it looks like. All right. So, well, maybe it's just me. I got several uh, really uh, great Christmas presents this year. And um, I've been thinking about those Christmas presents, and I've just been so grateful. And, and I wonder if you've ever received a really awesome Christmas present in your life, and you just were so overwhelmed that for, I'll just say the next week or maybe two weeks, every single person you walked up to, uh, you just said, hey, let me tell you about my Christmas present that I got this year. I mean, you were just so enthusiastic about the, this gift that you received. And, and maybe you've even wrote a letter to the person who gave you that uh, Christmas gift, a thank you letter saying, man, that was just the best Christmas gift ever. And let me tell you why. And you really touched me and moved me and, and maybe even transformed my life. And, and maybe as you were coming, getting ready to come to worship this morning, some of you out there were thinking to yourself, I can't wait to go to church this morning and tell Pastor Brian about the Christmas gift that I got three weeks ago. I'll bet you that's none of you, Right? Because Christmas comes and goes, we receive gifts, and then we kind of move on with our lives. If you're a guest of Faith Lutheran this morning, we are in the middle of a sermon series called This Changes Everything. And over the past few weeks, we've been really looking at the story and the life of Jesus Christ, God sending his son into the world as being the best Christmas gift ever. We've talked about the ways in which when God sent his son, Jesus, into the world, God made a way for us to be in relationship with him, both here and now and for all eternity. And if that was the only reason God sent Jesus to come into the world, is it so that we could be in relationship with God, that would be good enough. That would be amazing enough. That would still be, without question, the greatest gift that has ever come into the world. But... As we've looked at over the past few weeks, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world has not just made this relationship between us and God possible so that we can spend eternity and enjoy the abundant life today, but God sent Jesus into the world so that we can experience practical, tangible, real-life things, good things, gifts from God in the here and now. And so we've talked about the ways in which Jesus has changed everything as it relates to learning and our system of education, higher education, colleges, and so on and so forth. We talked about the ways in which Jesus came into the world and changed everything as it relates to healing and hospitals and the ways in which people have been cared for. 
the ways in which Jesus has even changed the, the power dynamics, the power structures, even our political system, Jesus' impact, and it absolutely transformed uh, our power dynamics. Jesus came into the world and he changed the world in, in the ways in which we, we look at slavery and freedom. And last week we looked at the ways in which when Jesus came into the world, he even changed the ways in which we look at children and how we experience children in our lives. And the crazy thing, I think, about all these radical transformations that Jesus has made in the world is that we just treat them as if it's normal. We just act as, well, this is the way it's always been in our lives. I think we even feel entitled. I'll bet you none of you woke up this morning and thought to yourself, I'm so grateful to just be free. I'm so glad that I'm not a slave. The truth is, slavery was a big part of ancient world, and Jesus changed that. Jesus changed things at every level. And I feel like oftentimes we are so ungrateful for the ways in which Jesus has changed this world and, and our own lives. In fact, I thought about calling this sermon series Ungrateful. But I thought, well, that's probably a little bit tacky coming close to Christmas. Who wants to hear a sermon series, a seven-week sermon series called Ungrateful, right? You invite your family and friends to Christmas Eve worship. Hey, what's going on at uh, Faith Lutheran Church for Christmas Eve? Uh, we're going to just talk about how ungrateful we are for all the ways in which Jesus has changed the world. So we call it, This Changes Everything. And this morning I want to talk to you about even the ways in which Jesus changed our understanding of women in this world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who has indeed changed everything at every level. And God, we're so busy in our lives doing what we do that we don't pause and remember that all that we have is truly a gift from you in the ways in which your son, Jesus Christ, has changed everything. So Lord, as we uh, read scripture this morning and reflect on uh, the text, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, ladies, you probably already know this. When Jesus walked on the earth in the first century, life was very, very different for women, for girls, than it is today. Ladies, if you were born in the first century, there's a good chance that after the, the first week, you would already be dead. We talked a little bit about this last week because in ancient times they had this idea, this regular practice called exposure. And because women and girls were not valued in their culture and in their society, women, girls, newborn girls, baby girls, if it was a girl who was born, oftentimes that child was taken out into the woods to be exposed to the elements hungry animals, bad weather, whatever it might be. It, women, little girls were considered disposable in ancient times. That's just the way it was. Legally, 
according to Roman law, every boy, little newborn baby boy, was required, the father was required to raise that child. But according to Roman law, only the first girl that was born, that father was also required to raise that child up. All the rest of them, according to Roman law, they could discard as they wanted to. And it was a regular practice in Greco-Roman world for little girls to be exposed within the first week of their life. In preparation for this morning, I ran across a couple different anecdotal stories of, of how this worked. Apparently, it was pretty common uh, in, in ancient times. Uh, there's a story of, in, in Delphi, Greece. There were 600 families living in a community, and this author was writing about only six of, of those 600 families actually raised more than one little girl. One percent of those 600 families. And this is in a time where people are having 10, 12 children. So we know that a lot of those babies, those baby girls were exposed. It was very common practice in ancient times to just discard the girls because they were not valuable. They were not considered valuable in the time. There's a Greek poet. He explained it this way. Um, Everyone raises a son even if he is poor but exposes a daughter even if he is rich. Didn't matter whether you were rich or poor. Girls were disposable in ancient times. Now let's just say, ladies, you survived the first week. What was your life going to look like as a girl or as a woman growing up? And last week we talked a little bit about this in terms of how ancient people understood the world. It was understood in greatness in terms of concentric circles. And in the middle was Caesar Augustus. It was that the Caesar, the guy on the throne who was all-powerful in Rome. And then the next circle out where there were these provincial uh, people, people like Pontius Pilate and Herod, and, and they were powerful and they were considered great. Further out were the religious leaders, people like the Sanhedrin and, and the priests and, and the people who were involved with the religious life, the Jewish life of the day. They were really important and powerful. And then the next circle out was what we would call the freemen. They were the, the, the men who were like the business owners, probably Roman citizens who were not slaves. And they had some power and influence. And then the next circle out, it was the foreigners, uh, people who came from other places living in the community, but they had power and probably money and, and, and likely also they had freedom. And then in the very last outer rim of these concentric circles were the slaves, the children, and the women. I mean, that's kind of how they viewed things in ancient times. And ladies, if you lived in the first century when Jesus walked on this earth, you really had two primary purposes. You had two roles in society, to pleasure men and to make babies. That's what you did, ladies, in the first century. If you lived in the first century and you actually survived into womanhood, uh, becoming of age. And it would start out like this. When you're still playing with Barbie dolls, you're still a little girl. Your dad was probably making arrangements for you to marry some guy someday. So when you would come of age, maybe 12, 13 years of age, 
all of a sudden you would meet your husband. And he might be a couple decades older than you. And that was kind of your plan. And, and so how many little girls are growing up going, man, I can't wait until I get married? Probably not very many. But this is how they did it. This is how they, uh, young girls, this is what their lives were like. Now, as you were growing up, ladies, you're not allowed to eat with the men. You're supposed to stay in the kitchen. You prepare the food, but you don't get to eat with the men. You don't get to talk to men out on the street. You don't talk to anybody. You just kind of stay at home and do what you do, and you can certainly talk to other ladies. You don't go to school. You don't learn to read. You don't get any kind of education. And you certainly wouldn't expect to ever own any land or be a property owner uh, or anything like that. Furthermore, you don't even get an opinion about anything. Nobody cares what you say. Ladies, you could have an opinion, but go talk to the other ladies because the guys don't care. And you could never, ever testify in a court of law. If somebody did something wrong to you, tough. If your husband decides or a man decides to stick up for you, he can go to court. But ladies, you get no opinion whatsoever. Again, remember, you're at the bottom of the social status. You are considered among slaves and children, just a little bit above, frankly, the animals of the day. That's what a life was like for women in the first century. Now, technically, speaking of property, you were considered property. First, you were property of your father. Then you were property of your husband. And if your husband died, then you actually became property of your children, your, your son. So if somebody owned you, a man owned you pretty much at all times. Now, if you can't have babies, if you're not performing and having babies, your husband can discard you, can divorce you. But more likely, he's just going to take on another wife. He's going to go find some other woman to have babies. And if your husband is a jerk... If he treats you horribly, if he beats you, if he has relationship with other women, tough. It's the way it is. That was life in the first century for women. That's the context in which Jesus arrived on this earth. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, what about church? It must have been better in the synagogue for Jewish women. It was a little bit better in the synagogue, in the Jewish life for ladies. But it was a completely separate system for women, Jewish women, in the first century. They couldn't participate in the life of synagogue like you and I can today. Even in the temple, I've got a picture of the temple here in Jerusalem. There's that outer court there that I put a circle around. Uh, that's called the, 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 the area for the women. The courtyard for the women. You weren't allowed to, you know, go fully inside the church. You kind of had to stay outside and not really ever get very close. Ladies were also not allowed in the first uh, uh, century to read Scripture or to even be close to Scripture. I mean, that's a big no-no. You can't even touch God's Word because this is holy. And a woman would never be tr entrusted to touch God's word. There's a, a rabbi in the first century, a guy by the name of Rabbi Eliezer ben Hyrcanus, and he describes it this way. 
Rather should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. There's a famous Pharisee prayer. Every Pharisee would wake up in the morning and they would say, Thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Isn't this a picker-upper sermon this morning? It was rough, folks. In the first century, when Jesus walked on this earth, and you can imagine, this almost goes without saying, but I'm just going to say it anyways, a woman would never, ever, ever talk to a rabbi. Because remember, he's one of the powerful people in the concentric circles, and she was on the fringe. Their social structures, and, the, and, and there would be such a chasm between a learned rabbi and a lowly woman. They would never, ever talk to a rabbi. But all this changed when Jesus came into the world in the first century. And I find it interesting that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospel writers, record story after story of the ways in which Jesus elevated women, gave dignity to women, gave power to women in the first century. But life was so different than what we experience today that most people simply could not get their heads around what a radical transformation this was. Jesus would interact with women, and the disciples were baffled. What is he doing? Jesus would interact with women, and the crowds around would be like, I don't get it. Why is he talking to this woman or these women? The religious people, Jesus would interact with women, and they would lose their minds, and they would get so angry. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, everyone was dumbfounded about what he was doing, how he was teaching. They had never, ever met a man who was so kind, so gracious, so loving, so accepting, and offered them so much dignity. Certainly, they had never met a rabbi. And they would ask themselves, who is this guy? Who is this guy that offers us dignity and respect and value? Jesus actually treated, and you can look at all the Gospels, he treated women 100% equally as he treated men. So radical. And so I just want to give you a, a couple examples of this this morning. Um, first example I want to give you uh, comes from uh, the Gospel of Luke. Luke 10. And you know this story, the story of Mary and Martha. Remember that story where um, uh, Martha's scurrying around, doing what Martha does, serving and, and waiting on people and all that. And there's Mary sitting there at the feet of Jesus. And it was just, and then in, in one moment, all of a sudden, you know, uh, Martha's like, Mary, come on, help me out. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha. And oftentimes we hear this story in church and we think, what Jesus is really teaching us is that we shouldn't be so busy with our lives, that we should just sit at the feet of Jesus. I don't think that's the main point of the story. 
I think what the main point of the story is in that moment is Jesus is actually elevating a woman because a woman would never sit at the feet of a rabbi. This was scandalous. This was outrageous. Women did not sit at the feet of rabbis. And everybody's going, what in the world is going on? And, and Jesus says, it's okay. She's actually doing a good thing. And people are like, what? We don't even have categories for this. A woman sitting at the feet of a rabbi? Give you an example from John 4. Did you know that the longest recorded conversation that Jesus ever has with anyone in the New Testament is in John 4. It's the woman at the well. And again, in, that, in those days, women did not talk to rabbis, and rabbis certainly never, ever, ever, ever talked to women. But there it is. We read in John 4, where Jesus and the woman at the well have this incredible uh, conversation. And I'm going to give you an example from Mark 14. It's a story about a woman, a sinful woman, who anoints the feet of Jesus. She's actually touching him. He's holy. He's a rabbi. He's a holy man. And she's considered an, a, a sinful woman. She's defiled. And there she is, touching his feet. And he's acknowledging her touching him. He says, it's, it's good, folks. This is okay. I'm okay with this. She's actually doing a good thing. And everybody's going, who is this guy? I mean, how in the world does this even work? Even if she were a good woman, if she wasn't a sinful woman, women didn't come up to guys, just random rabbis, and start touching their feet. This is outrageous. Who does she think she is? And what is wrong with this guy that he is not rebuking her? And then in the Gospel of Matthew, again, just one of many, many examples throughout the New Testament, we read about Jesus interacting with not just one woman, but two women. It's recorded in Matthew 9. While Jesus was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue, uh, the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, he said, go away. This girl is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand. She got up. News of this spread through all the region. So there's two incredible miracles of healing that happened here. But I think every bit as great of just these miracles of Jesus healing uh, these two women is the fact that Jesus is interacting, having any kind of communication with these women at all. And it says that news spread through all that region. 
When I say news spread, I think of like tabloids. I think of Prince Harry and scandal that's going on. Are you kidding? That rabbi did what? He talked to those girls. He allowed them to touch him. One was unclean. Oh, I mean, the, 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 the buzz and, the, and all the noise of going on. Jesus is absolutely, time after time, he takes those concentric circles and he just squashes them. He just blows them up as it relates to how people are to interact with one another in terms of who's great, who's not, who's important, who's not. He says, folks, I got a whole new way for us to be thinking about what it means for you to be human being. No wonder the women loved him. He was so good to them. He was so kind to them. He was so compassionate like they had never experienced before. He elevated them. He gave them dignity. In one moment, as Jesus is teaching, he would talk about himself being the son of God. And then in the next moment, he would look at a woman and say, hello, daughter. It's going to be okay, my daughter. And spoke with such intimate terms and relational terms. And this shocked everyone. This scandalized their society. But the women loved him. The women loved Jesus because he was so good to them. And I think about when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. No wonder all the guys ran. They were scared. But all the ladies stayed close. And they walked with him all the way to the cross. I don't think it's any kind of accident that the ladies were the last ones at the cross as Jesus took his final breath. All four Gospels record it was the ladies who were at the cross. Four ladies and a guy. And he was terrified. And it was also the ladies who were the first one to come to the tomb on that first Easter morning. It was a woman who first Jesus spoke to after he rose from the grave. How did all the disciples, the men disciples, find out that Jesus had risen from the grave? From the ladies. It was a woman who preached the very first sermon in the New Testament as the church began. He is risen. His body's not there. He's risen. And the ladies, over and over, Jesus not only loved them and cared for them, but he leveraged them uh, and put them in these positions of being preachers and teachers and, and these significant roles in the life of the church. And he commissioned them to go and make disciples. All four Gospels record this, of how Jesus elevated the role of women how Jesus gave them dignity and honor. Mary Magdalene, she, was, she had a significant role in the life of the church. Sometimes she's known as the apostle to the apostles. Think about that for a moment. You got the apostles, the disciples that we know of. And there's Mary Magdalene, the apostle to the apostles. She was a powerful woman. She was an extraordinary woman because she had met the risen Christ. He invited her to serve the church. And as we read throughout the New Testament, 
ladies played a significant role in the life of the early church. Now, you might be sitting here thinking to yourself, okay, I've read the New Testament. I've read many of Paul's epistles. Paul was kind of a misogynist, right? I mean, we think that, right? We think, ah, Paul, he, he was kind of rough on ladies. I would simply say Paul was a man of his times. Remember, they got this structure of concentric circles. Paul didn't live in the 21st century. He lived in the first century where women were treated just above dogs. So I think we need to cut the Apostle Paul a little bit of slack in terms of some of his writings in the New Testament. When we understand the context for Paul's writings in, in, in the New Testament, then I think we can be like, okay, maybe Paul's writings aren't so rough on women. But I, I want to just lift up to you one passage uh, from Romans 16. Romans, of course, the Apostle Paul wrote. Uh, and this is what Paul is. He's describing women serving in leadership. So I'm going to go to Romans 16. And I just want you to hear these women who Paul is lifting up as he's sending personal greetings. He says to you, uh, I commend to you, church in Rome, uh, our sister Phoebe, a deacon uh, of the church in Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. They were some early leaders in the life of the church. Priscilla and Aquila, they were a couple. Greet also uh, the church that meets in their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. Paul is calling Junia an apostle. Among the apostles, Junia was outstanding. And they were in Christ even before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear uh, friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stychus. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the house of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, uh, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa. Whose women, those women who worked hard for the Lord, greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard for the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, Rufus's mom, who's been a mother to me too. Greet Asinicris, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Eleven times. Paul is lifting up the name of these women who are serving in the church. This never would have happened in any other religious body in ancient times. But Paul is calling out these ladies as significant servants over and over. And in the first century, these ladies were, uh, they would have these commissioning services as deacons as elders, and some of the ancient manuscripts even show them as priests serving in the life of the church. 
I mean, they held prominent roles. No wonder. Jesus was so good to them. And he elevated them and they wanted to serve in the church. And so this went on in the church where women were held up in esteem and they served in positions of authority. In the second century, Clement of Alexandra wrote this, the apostles were accompanied on their missionary journeys by women who were not marriage partners, but colleagues that they might be their fellow ministers to other women. So in the second century, women are serving in significant roles. In the third century, Bishop Cyprian of Carthage wrote this, Christian women are so numerous in the church that it's difficult to find Christian husbands for all of them. I mean, the ladies are everywhere, just like today, serving. And there's so many of them. Where do we find some Christian men for them to partner with? In the fourth century, Jerome, you maybe have heard that name. Jerome was a a really significant guy in the life of the church. And he began teaching women in the church to read and to study scripture and to kind of figure some of the stuff out as it relates to all the, 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 the New Testament manuscripts. And shortly after Jerome, Augustine came along. And he recognized that these women, so many women in the church were educated that uh, Augustine said this, any old Christian woman is better educated in spiritual matters than many a philosopher. And this went on, and, and I could do every century for you. We could look at, you know, how women were serving in the life of the church, how they were being elevated and being honored and contributing to the life of the body of Christ. Now, to be clear, It was a long, hard-fought road, if you will. It was oftentimes two steps forward and one step back. Oftentimes, the women would start serving, the guys would be like, all right, ladies, you've had your part, now sit down. It wasn't always neat. It wasn't always easy. And oftentimes, the men were the biggest obstacles to the life of the church as it relates to women serving and, you know, being elevated So I don't want to paint this as a picture of something it wasn't for sure. It was still a hard fight for women. And it was kind of two steps forward, one step back. But as more and more uh, people and nations experienced Jesus in the Christian church, women began to be elevated. And the interesting thing is, in the first century, for every 100 women that walked on the planet, there were 140 guys. So in the first century, when Jesus walked on the planet, there were way more guys uh, uh, on the earth. But over time, the numbers began to become more equal. Now, even today, you probably know this, places like China and India, they still have this disparity of, you know, what we would call exposure from the first century, that, you know, those uh, little girls, the pregnancies are terminated. So it's still a problem today for sure. But well, the, the, the good news is, is, is this, these numbers just started coming down. So there's more equality in terms of who is even walking uh, on the planet. So I'm going to fast forward to the 16th century, the time of the Reformation. And at this point in time, women are no longer in just massive numbers as viewed as chattel, as property. But more and more women are honored and valued in the Christian churches and so you probably know the story about Martin Luther. He married a, an ex-nun, Katie von Bora. And this is how he spoke about his wife. 
he called her his rib, which was just an endearing way for him to say, she's so close to me. I love her so much that I feel like we are one in the same. It's just this love language. He also, uh, another nickname for Katie uh, uh, Luther was my book of Galatians. And at first you're like, that sounds a little weird, right? But Martin Luther was a scholar. He was a theologian. He studied the book of Galatians. He spent an incredible amount of time in the book of Galatians. And he, when he describes his conversion to being a follower of Jesus, he says, it's because of the book of Galatians. He said, that's how I feel about Katie. I spent all this time with her. And she's just changed me and made me a better person. So he called her my book of Galatians. And then I love this other one, the boss of Zalsdorf. Zalsdorf was their farm property. She was the boss. Remember, in the first century, women didn't own land, and they certainly weren't the boss of anything other than men. We could go on and on. We could tell all sorts of stories, look at all sorts of examples about the ways in which the church continued to elevate women to where we're at today. And it all comes down to this idea, and we've talked about this week after week, of imago day, that we are made in the image of God. When Jesus came on the earth, he looked at each and every person, whether they were a slave, a woman, a child, it didn't matter to him. And he would treat them all with respect and dignity and love and compassion. And he said, your value is not in what you do, in your social status, anything you accomplish. Your value is because you were made in the image of God, imago Dei. That's why you're important. That's why you're precious. And this is what has changed the world and elevated women in our society. So I think about us today. I would say a couple things. One, I think we still have a long way to go. I think we all agree that women still do not have today what most of us men have today in terms of uh, all the privileges that we have. And I'm not going to go into any detail. I just think we got a ways to go. And maybe ladies, I'll say to you, you ought to be grateful for Jesus coming into the world for what he has done for you, the ways in which he has lifted you up, valued you, honored you, and elevated you. He's done a lot for ladies. And guys, if this is the way Jesus treated ladies, we need to also. We need to honor them. We need to value them. We need to give them compassion and treat them like Jesus treated them with respect and dignity. Because when Jesus came into the world, he changed everything. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are a God who's changed so much in our lives and in the world. And yet, God, we continue to just not be grateful so God, thank you. Thank you for the ways in which you have elevated women. 
and I think about the women in my life. I think about my mom. I think about my wife. I think about my daughters. I think about my sisters in Christ. I think about all the ladies, all the women that I interact with day in and day out. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for giving them dignity. Thank you for giving them honor. Thank you for loving them the way you love me. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.